0: To Matthew chapter 9. As we saw the last time we were in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is not the same man as Luke or Mark or John. He has a style unique to Matthew. Matthew has a tendency to make his narratives more efficient than the other gospel writers. And how dare we hear that word, efficient, and think that Matthew is doing a better job by being briefer. Let us not think such a thing. Let us just observe that he is leaving things out. And he has his reasons for doing so, we are sure. And we are not harmed by it in any way. In fact, we are helped. We are going to recognize this passage tonight. And we might quickly recognize what is left out. There is no digging through the roof in this passage. There is no laying him down on the floor. It's all the same scene, but it is condensed. Beloved, it is sufficient for the Lord's purposes for this night, June 26, 2022. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as your word is now to be read and preached, we, grant, we pray that you would grant hearing to those who have ears to hear. O oh Lord, come to us. Come to us not according to our readiness, not according to our preparation, not according to our abilities. Come to us according to the measure of Christ's grace. Come, Lord, we pray. Grant us hearing ears, believing hearts, compliant wills to the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Matthew 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God. had given such authority to men. This is God's word. In his 18th century book, The History of England, David Hume tells a story about Queen Elizabeth I that many historians now believe is more legend than fact. I will retell you the story, even so, but please hear it more like a parable, because as a parable, it actually helps us understand the commitment of the scribes in our text tonight and why they are so opposed to Jesus Christ. The story goes that Queen Elizabeth's dear friend, the Countess of Nottingham, was on her deathbed. The queen, who herself would die a month later, comes to see the Countess. During the visit, the Countess confessed a great wrong. She revealed that she had in her possession a ring, a ring the queen had given her long, excuse me, a a ring the queen had given to the Earl of Essex long ago. The queen had given this ring to the Earl as a token of her deep friendship, her abiding affection, and she had told the Earl upon the occasion of giving him the ring that if he ever needed her, just present the ring and she would prove her tenderness and help. While the Earl had gone on to become a troublemaker in the kingdom of Britain, He was arrested for conspiracy, tried in court, condemned to die, and he did die. His head was removed at the Tower of London. Same place Lady Jane Grey's head was removed. But now two years after his death, the countess is showing the queen the ring. Why does she have it? Well, she has it because the Earl of Essex, while waiting execution, gave it to the countess asking her to deliver it to the queen. It was his plea for that help. But the countess did not deliver it. She kept it. Because the earl was an enemy of her own husband, Charles, the Earl of Nottingham. So the countess, on her deathbed, reveals the ring and begs the queen for forgiveness. The queen will not forgive her. All her affection for the earl is suddenly renewed in her bosom and in a rage she begins shaking the countess and yells, God may forgive you, but I never will. Now why did the queen refuse to show mercy? Because to forgive to her would be a betrayal of the earl. And this explains, I suppose, why many people refuse to forgive. They think they're, re- they're betraying some important constituent in their life. But this also gives us much insight into the scribes and the Pharisees, who do not like forgiveness at all. On several occasions, our Lord rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes for a lack of mercy, In fact, the hard and cold attitude of the scribes and Pharisees was so thick in the air, it is why Jesus Christ had to include these penetrating words in Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why were the scribes so cold toward forgiveness. It was a betrayal. They took it. It was a betrayal of their greatest loyalty, their loyalty to themselves. You see, they had worked hard to prove, the scribes and Pharisees, they worked hard to prove that they did not need much forgiveness. That's what the religious life was all about to them. But what if a man who didn't work as hard as they could be forgiven every failure and fault? What did that say to the scribe and Pharisee? Well, it made their efforts far less significant than they could bear. And hearing Jesus forgive people was a wound to their pride. Now that sets us up for what we find in this text tonight our Lord Jesus, verse 1 says, has returned to Capernaum. From where? From the Gadarene area. From the Decapolis area. Where he cast out the demons who were legion. And according to Mark 2, 1, a parallel passage, our Lord is in his own home. That's what it says in Mark 2, 1. But more likely, this is actually Peter's home. And it is our Lord's home base for his ministry in that region. Galilee. Now, while he is here in Capernaum again, some people brought to Jesus the paralytic, a man who cannot walk, a man who is in some way paralyzed at some point in his, either in his spine or in his feet or in his legs. But I want you to keep in mind that this is all just a few days after our Lord has already presided over a great evening of healings and exorcisms in Capernaum, which then he left, and now he's back. Remember, that was the night in 816, Matthew 816, where he healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever, and the people were bringing all sorts of injured and crippled and possessed people to him. So now this word has gotten out that he's back. It has gotten out to the paralytic, and to his friends, that Jesus is back in Capernaum and their opportunity has arrived. And what is the first thing that happens? Matthew says, Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now that is a remarkable thing to say to a paralytic. That is a remarkable thing to hear if you are a paralytic. What's remarkable about saying it is that Jesus speaks as one, as the one who has been offended. He speaks as the one who has been transgressed against. He speaks as the one sinned against by this, this particular paralytic. And what's more remarkable is that Jesus is not speaking of a single sin that was some private infraction between himself and this paralytic. In other words, Jesus is not forgiving the paralytic for stealing something from Jesus' house. He's not forgiving the paralytic for slandering him last Thursday when he was in Capernaum. Remarkably, Jesus is not declaring The forgiveness of one random sin, but forgiveness of all the man's sins. The whole lot of them, a whole life's worth of sins are being forgiven in the declaration. And Jesus forgives them all with an authority that no one other than God would have over a man's sins. This is either blasphemy, and you notice that the scribes move in that direction because Jesus is acting in the place of God when he is not. So it's either blasphemy of that kind, or this is the highest divinity on display yet in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus speaking in the place of God because he is the Son of God. Now think about how remarkable it would be to hear this as the paralytic. You have come some distance, being carried by long-suffering friends. You are hoping this Jesus will heal something in your body. Yet when you are finally in his presence, he offers you words instead of physical healing. He says, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. In other words, Don't be discouraged, dear one. Don't think God's anger and wrath cling to you any longer through this life or into eternity. No, your sins are forgiven. Of course, you are not reconciled to your body or made whole, but you are reconciled to God and made whole in mercy through steadfast love. This is a remarkable thing to hear. Take heart. This is a word of authority. Jesus forgives sin because he has the divine authority to forgive sin. Now, for a few moments, his divine authority to forgive sins will remain invisible. But the paralytic already sees it, even though it's invisible. The paralytic sees that this invisible divine authority belongs to Jesus. This is why our text says Jesus saw their faith. Don't miss this. Jesus could see in them that they could see in him his invisible divine authority to forgive sins. So when Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. The paralytic knew it to be true in just the same way that Jesus, who declared it, knew it to be true. That is the great privilege of faith. Beloved, this is a glorious privilege for the children of God. We see in Jesus what he knows in himself that he is the divine son with divine authority to forgive sin saving faith sees that Jesus knows that of himself faith allows you to rest in his gracious judgments which is the best way to honor the one who pronounced those gracious judgments over you your sins are forgiven take heart do not despair do not let any outward trial any bodily suffering any previous evil in your life do not let any of it swamp your heart with any dread or doubt because what is going on with your body and your outward life is not telling you what the word of Christ is telling you your sins are forgiven Take heart. Give Jesus honor where he wants you to honor him by believing and resting in his divine authority to forgive your sins. Now in verse 3, the scribes begin to think the thoughts, well, the thoughts of those who have no faith. They can't see the invisible divine authority of Jesus over sin. So what do they do? They secretly, with unseen thoughts, judge Jesus to be a blasphemer because Jesus declares forgiveness. He speaks like only God could. And what does Jesus make of their judgment of him? Why do you think evil In your hearts, verse 4. This is something. The inner thoughts of the scribes are not just mistaken. They are evil thoughts. Evil because they are not interested to learn at all how Jesus can lawfully forgive sin. Evil because they are asserting a fallible human authority over he who exercises divine authority, judging him to be false. It is evil to let our authority of conscience stand in judgment over the word of Christ. This is the very evil for which Christ has come to save us. Because not until we have the Holy Spirit will we finally break the authoritative dominion of a dead conscience over the word of Christ. They are only interested in keeping their authority. An authority they only use to identify the sins of others, which they have now done against Christ. An authority they use not to bring others to rest in the mercies of God. If the Pharisees really, if the scribes here really loved mercy and forgiveness, they would inquire to Jesus, how could this be? We do not understand, teacher, how can this man's sin be forgiven so easily and lawfully? Explain it to us. But the scribes quickly condemn rather than inquire, says Calvin. Because why? They prefer condemnation. That's their trade. These are the merciless ones. They tithe their spices, Jesus says to them in another place but they neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy and faithfulness and justice. So there are two great ironies in verse 4, really. One, Jesus can see the evil in the scribes, but they cannot see it in themselves. They find evil in Christ, but none in them. Number two, the scribes do not ask Jesus to forgive their sins. He's right there. They do not ask. The one who has authority, divine authority over sins to say your sins are forgiven, is in the house with them. And they avail themselves not of such authority. For they are glad with their small little authority that makes them evil. Now in verse 5 and verse 6, our Lord decides to make his invisible divine authority visible. That's what that's about. He says to the scribes, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? The answer is, that the first declaration is easier to say than the second. It is easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say, rise up and walk. Easier because no one thinks you can prove a declaration about sins being forgiven. Who can suddenly carry a person like a superman forward in time to the day of the judgment and show that that man's sins were truly forgiven by the declaration of another? So Jesus' question in verse 5 is saying, you think these words of mine are cheap and easily spoken and some kind of vain encouragement, some kind of empty consolation for this paralytic? Then I will say something that will show you that I truly have authority, a divine authority that you have not seen, even though I have exercised it and those who have faith can see. So I will show you I have authority to make both declarations. So Jesus turns to the man, the paralytic, and says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And beloved, did the scribes fall on their face and say, forgive us. Forgive us our sins too, O Son of God. They did not. Christ made his divine invisible authority visible, and they still would not believe their eyes. Such is the depth of our sin and corruption. Such is the sway the devil holds over the souls of men. Such is the power of sin in us. Christ must come. He must break us out of this dark cell. We wouldn't even believe if a man came back from the dead and testified to us of hell's torments. Isn't that what the rich man was told as he slowly entered his eternal agony under the everlasting judgments of God? He said said to Jesus, well, you know, he didn't say to Jesus. Let me correct myself. He said to Lazarus, the poor man who was in Abraham's bosom, he said, have somebody sent back from the dead to warn my brothers. And the Lord said, they wouldn't even believe if somebody came back from the dead, if they have already refused to believe Moses and the scriptures. Love it. the point is simply this. The scribes can't believe even though the invisible authority has now gone visible. None can believe when we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We must be quickened. How great is the grace that God has shown to you that you believe, that you believe Jesus has divine authority. Well, As we come to a close here, do we, do we need this same demonstration? Do we need the same demonstration of Christ's power and authority over the body to have confirmed to us that our sins are forgiven? Yes, we do. That almost is like a catechism question. We do need a similar demonstration of Christ's authority and power over the body to have confirmed to us that our sins are forgiven. And we have it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He took up his mat and went home. Listen to the Apostle Paul. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The man who has picked up his mat and gone home, Who has testified to all of his authority to forgive sins is Jesus Christ. If I had timed this sermon better on the calendar, we would have heard it last week, and I would have then said at the Lord's table Look, here is his body, here is his blood. he would have you see in these signs that he is alive and risen and that his body, fully well and raised, is a testimony that he has the authority to say your sins are forgiven. Renew the covenant in my body and blood. Beloved, I urge you to fight to fight valiantly against the instincts of the scribes. Young people, let this be the greatest fight of your life. Fight against the instincts of the scribes to let your authority judge the word of Jesus Christ. Let your conscience judge the word of Jesus Christ. Your conscience is Damaged and ruined and in bondage until Jesus heals it and it can yield and submit and rest under the word of Jesus Christ. Ask him to do that for you if it hasn't been done. He is not hard. And beloved, there is one and only one who has the authority to forgive sins. And he has spoken. Your sins are forgiven. Believe his word. It is the only way to honor him and go on to rest in him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you we praise you for this demonstration of the authority of your beloved Son to declare sins forgiven, knowing full well that he would be the Lamb to make atonement for those sins. Lord, we thank you for his quickness and readiness to identify the newest spark and beginning of faith in this paralytic. And we thank you for the gift of that faith. We thank you that it pleases you to give the faith that sees the invisible divine authority of your beloved Son to those who are nobodies in the world, to those who seem to be able to do nothing for the world to those who seem so desperately needy, even before heaven. But you bestow upon them that which our Lord saw. Father, we thank you that it pleases you to cheer us with the words, Take heart. Do not languish under the lie that our sins might not be forgiven or that only some have been forgiven or they will only be forgiven if we add this to them. Oh, Lord, we thank you that they are forgiven by the word, the living word and his authoritative word. Grant us, Lord, grace to take heart in this. Let us not take doubt. Let us not take despair. Let us not be double-minded. Let us not waffle about. Fix us in it, Lord. Grant by your spirit, by the very gracious word that said it, grant that we would take heart and indeed rise and walk and serve in the confidence and joy of knowing that our sins cannot cling to us now that Jesus has spoken. In his name we pray, amen.